Amen. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you and to worship with you this morning at WPC. Today we continue our Grown Up VBS series where we're exploring Bible stories from our childhood, looking for a deeper meaning while also seeking to re-instill our childlike wonder for the God these stories reveal. When planning this series back in early spring, I thought there isn't really a better story for this series than the Christmas story, the story of Christ's birth. The story of incarnation, of God drawing near and dwelling with us in Christ. A story even children who have never been to church learn in one way or another. Plus, let's all admit, it's fun to sing Christmas songs. So I'll be honest with you, this week I really tried to get in the spirit of the season. I tried to load up my Christmas playlist on Spotify, but it just didn't work. I tried to watch Ralphie and Ch- uh, Clark Griswold, but it didn't feel right. Then I thought, maybe this is the point. This is the reason we should look at the story of Christ's birth in July. Typically around Christmas, our minds are in a million different places, with overcrowded shopping and to-do lists, schedules, and with not enough hours in the day. Not to mention the over-commercialization of this day and the season all around it. All these things can make it really hard for us to really take a good look at a powerful story of a limitless, infinite God entering human history in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. So my hope is that six months removed from December, we'll be able to approach this beloved and foundational story of our faith from another angle. We'll be able to dive deeper into the story, its details, nuances, and such. To aid us in this effort, we've already heard one Christmas story of the Bible in our first reading, the prologue of John with its poetic and cosmic rendering of God's eternal word becoming flesh and living with us. In our second reading, we'll hear Luke's beloved and familiar Christmas story. But we'll be reading from the Common English Bible, a newer translation, to hopefully help us hear this story fresh and anew. Friends, I invite you to listen with open hearts and minds as we encounter God's word together from the second chapter of Luke, beginning with the first verse. In those days, Caesar Augustus declared that everyone throughout the empire should be enrolled in the tax list. This first enrollment occurred when Quirinius governed Syria. Everyone went to their own cities to be enrolled. Since Joseph belonged to David's house and family line, he went up from the city of Nazareth in Galilee to David's city, called Bethlehem in Judea. He went to be enrolled together with Mary, who was promised to him in marriage, and who was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for Mary to have her baby. She gave birth to her firstborn child, a son, wrapped him snugly and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the guest room. We'll pause here. Normally on Christmas Eve, this little section of scripture comes in the middle of uh, a number of readings, prophecies, And we follow it in our lessons and carol service with a verse from Away in a Manger or a Little Town of Bethlehem that lifts up the spirit of these first seven verses. 
Today, though, as we look at this text from a different angle, six months removed from Christmas, I want us to look at some of the details the Gospel writer Luke is so careful to lay out in telling us about Jesus' birth. Luke begins the story of Jesus' birth by placing it in time. And it truly has a folksy campfire feel to it, as if your grandparent were telling it to you. You see, this happened back when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and, you know, Caesar Augustus said everyone in the empire needed to be counted for the census. Like many folk stories, though, scholars have found some historical problems with Luke's placement. Quirinius was governor of Syria uh, in the years 6 and 7 of the Common Era, and there's ample evidence of him holding a census around this time. Caesar Augustus' reign from 27 BCE to 14 CE certainly fits within this timeline. The issue here is that at the beginning of the gospel, both Luke and Matthew placed Jesus' birth as being in the days of King Herod of Judea, who died in the year of 4 BCE. Luke, writing nearly 80 years after this fact, and without much more than oral stories to go off of, uh, likely mixes some of these dates up and people up. So let's not give the guy a hard time for mixing up a few timelines, because really that's not the point at all. The point Luke is making by naming these leaders is to reiterate that Jesus, the Son of God, God's Word made flesh, was born in real human time in history. It really happened, and here's when it happened. There's a geographical point to this as well. Narratively, in the way Luke is telling his story, Luke needs for the Holy Family to get from Nazareth, where they lived, to Bethlehem for Jesus' birth. Matthew, the only other gospel to have a birth story, has Mary and Joseph living in Bethlehem when the Savior is born. It's only after their escape to Egypt, fleeing Herod's slaughter of infants, that the Holy Family will move to Nazareth. The census becomes the plot point Luke needs to tell the story, getting the Holy Family to Bethlehem. Now, why Bethlehem? He says it right there. It's David's city. It's where David was from, and it was prophesied to be the birthplace of the Messiah, coming from the line of David. It's a connection to the glory days of Israel. It's what we explored together last Sunday as David unified the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel into one nation with its capital in Jerusalem. The Jewish people believed that the Messiah would deliver Israel from Rome and reunify a broken people and kingdom, just as it was back in David's day. So when Mary and Joseph reach Bethlehem, they register, and then comes time for Mary to have the baby. Only after Luke tells us Jesus is born do we learn that he was placed in a manger, a feeding trough. It's hard to miss the symbolism that Jesus, who would later feed thousands and call himself the bread of life, was born and first laid in a feeding trough. Why was he born in a manger? because there is no room for them in the guest room, or inn. This is the beloved part in any Christmas pageant where the innkeeper turns away Mary and Joseph because they sold all their rooms. I know back in my preschool days, I played a pretty good innkeeper myself. And this is how we think about this part of the story. 
as if they pulled up to the Holiday Inn and the no vacancy sign is lit. But this isn't the best image of what Luke is trying to depict here. Luke uses a word for inn or hotel later in his gospel. He uses a different word completely. When talking about the hospitality, the Samaritan offers a stranger who is mugged and gets them at medical attention and then later pays for them to have a room in the inn. Luke uses a different word there. The Greek word used here is different from this one, uh, it, where he is trying to describe Mary and Joseph's quest to seek lodging. The word Luke uses here in, in chapter 2 is kataluma. Scholar Brendan Byrne notes that this word here is understood to be more of a caravansary, a place where travelers in the, in the Middle East would lodge together on the outskirts of town, out in the open, with at least some feeling of security of all being together in the same place. So using today's travel terminology, you might understand it a little better as a rest stop than a Motel 6 or Airbnb. The point Luke seems to be making is that Mary and Joseph are far from elite in society. They're marginal. They're transient. Joseph may come from David's great ancestral line, but there isn't even room for this expectant couple in the rest stop on the outskirts of town. As a result, Jesus is born outside the Bethlehem town limits, in a stable with animals, and is laid in a feeding trough. The one who will shine the light of God's love and welcome is not shown this in the world, even at his birth. Instead, his birth shows God's special care and compassion towards those on the margins of society. And it is to just such a marginal group of shepherds out in the fields that will be called upon to be the first witnesses to the Christ child. So let's finish the story and meet these shepherds, friends, picking up at verse 8. Nearby, shepherds were living in the fields, guarding their sheep at night. The Lord's angels stood before them. The Lord's glory shone around them, and they were terrified. The angel said, don't be afraid. Look, I bring good news to you, wonderful, joyous news for all people. Your Savior is born today in David's city. He is Christ the Lord. This is a sign for you. You will find a newborn baby wrapped snugly and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great assembly of the heavenly forces was with the angel praising God. They said, Glory to God in heaven and on earth, peace among those whom God favors. When the angels returned to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, Let's go right now to Bethlehem and see what's happened. Let's confirm what the Lord has revealed to us. They went quickly and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. When they saw this, they reported what they had been told about this child. Everyone who heard it was amazed at what the shepherds told them. Mary committed these things to memory and considered them carefully. The shepherds returned home, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. Everything happened just as they had been told. Friends, this is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. So if you look at chapter 2, if you look at the story of Christ's birth in Luke, 
you'll notice that Luke doesn't use a whole lot of ink depicting Christ's actual birth. Instead, most of his writing energy is placed in the events leading up to the birth, the census, no room, and the, in the rest area. But he spends even more energy depicting the first witnesses to the Messiah, the shepherds. Matthew's first witnesses to the Christ child are the magi, or wise men, educated leaders from the East, and therefore outsiders to the Jewish faith. Luke's first witnesses, on the other hand, are likely from the Jewish community, but are on the margins of it. Shepherding was not a glamorous, prestigious, or high-paying profession. It was dirty, it was dangerous, it required you to be away from the community for extended periods of time. It makes a lot of sense with Luke's picture of Jesus, who would welcome outsiders, heal lepers, dine with tax collectors, that the first witnesses to his birth would not be the religious elite, but rather lowly shepherds who were on the outskirts, like him, watching over their flock. But this also goes back to David. You see, David, too, was a shepherd. He was the youngest brother in his family, and so was given the lowliest job in the family. He watched over the sheep. These shepherds are David's professional heirs, just as Jesus is David's genealogical heir. But I think there's one more reason Luke highlights the shepherds as the first witnesses. They model a new leadership, a new leadership that Christ brings about in the dawning of God's kingdom. No longer is it the warlord or tyrant that is the praise leader. Rather, it's the humble, patient shepherd who watches over and tends his flock. This is the very way of leadership Christ brings and calls us all to seek as we follow him. So these shepherds are out in the field and suddenly they're surrounded by angels who speak the first words of Christmas. Do not be afraid. They tell this ragged group of shepherds to go to Bethlehem, take sight of the Christ child. Upon seeing him, the shepherds go forth proclaiming this good news for all to hear, making these lowly shepherds among the first people to preach the good news of Jesus. Like the lowly shepherds, Mary and Joseph, Jesus' poor marginal parents, are also lifted up and exalted in his birth. Seeing the shepherds, Mary takes in all the beauty and mystery of this moment of God's incarnation. And Luke tells us that she committed these things to memory and treasured them. The Greek word Luke uses here is symbolo. And we get the word symbol and symbolism from it. It quite literally means to throw things together. So she's trying to throw all of this mystery together to ponder it, to treasure it, to give thanks to God for it. So it seems, friends, this might be the best takeaway for us as we ponder the story of Christ's birth, of the incarnation together in July. The wondrous and mysterious story of God drawing near to us in Jesus, of God's eternal word becoming flesh and living with us, is not a story bound by time or season, but indeed is a reality that changes all other realities. A couple weeks ago, when we studied the story of creation, I shared a quote with you from the Catholic priest and writer Richard Rohr that very much applies to our story today as well. 
He said that God loves things by becoming them. Just as God showed God's love for creation by breathing life into it, so God shows God's love for us in becoming flesh and living among us in the person of Jesus. God has intervened in human history, friends, and nothing can or will ever be the same again. Because of this, we know that God loves us and that God is with us. Because of Jesus, we know that there is no mountain peak or valley low. There is no joy or pain we can experience in life where God isn't right there beside us in the midst of it. Because of Christ's birth, life, death, and resurrection, we can be confident that God rejoices with us when we rejoice and that God weeps with us when we weep. As incarnational Christians who trust that in Jesus God is with us, we are also to stand alongside our neighbors, our brothers and sisters in need. We are to, as Paul says, to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Friends like Mary, may we always treasure and ponder this beautiful mystery of God's love for us and becoming flesh in Jesus as we await his return in glory. And like the shepherds, may we go from here sharing the good news of God's incarnation with a world who is longing for God to draw near in love. That we, friends, might be beacons of God's own presence and love for the world and community around us. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace and goodwill for all. Amen.